Hey, Joe. Hey, Robert. What's going on, my friend? You know, I'm just uh, knee-deep in, uh, in a content marketing world presentation and, and uh, enjoying the last days of, of summer. And uh, yeah. you're, you've been traveling. I am traveling as we speak, um, so if I sound a little different these days, it's uh, because I'm on the road, as we used to do this so often from the uh, from the road. But uh, yeah, today finds me in Toronto um, at the wonderful Connex conference uh, put on by the good oh. folks at Uberflip. Well, that's that sounds just lovely. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, how, how are you? Are you now? Are you watching preseason football? Uh, I I've been watching a little bit, but I'm really just anxious for regular season football because preseason football is boring but regular season football i'm i've never been more stoked about you know what we should do we should <laughs> what? we should for the record we should put our predictions down right now for the browns and the okay Cowboys. all right i like it okay i like it what's okay so what do you got for the browns all right uh i'm gonna go with nine and seven and a wild card that's what i'm going with Ooh, the browns that's pretty that's that's pretty okay that's bold. That's 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 it's a bold strategy, so Cotton. Let's see if it Robert, works out for him. I, I've been predicting them at nine and seven for the past ten years. So it's, that's right. This, this so exactly at, the same. <laughs> at some point, it has to actually at some come point true. It's going to happen. That's right. How about yeah? How about you, uh, Cowboys? Uh, I'm going ten and six. Ooh. Uh, assuming Zeke, of course, comes off the hawaiian or mexican vacation that he's on currently and actually signs with the team um i'm going 10 and 6 and winning the division well that's bold my friend bolder than my yeah. 9 and 7 and, and wild card because we have i don't think so yeah Mayfield. they're gonna need 10 and 6 they're gonna yeah. 9 and 7 no, won't cut read, it this year no i read a gq article that baker turned water into wine the other day and, <laughs> uh, i'm really excited about what he could do on the football field <laughs> I see. Anyways, I see. Do you want to yeah. do this marketing podcast or not? <laughs> we oh, a marketing podcast. Yes. That's what this is. Uh, All right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's roll. And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, P and R, with this old marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, my friends. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 215 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Wednesday, August 21st, 2019. And with me as well is my co-host, my colleague, and the guy in content marketing who actually could buy Greenland, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? <laughs> I actually just saw that news blip come across that... that was that a serious? That was that was real news. That it's a serious news. thing. Yes, he just canceled his trip to Denmark because he says they won't sell him Greenland. I mean, this would be an Onion article anywhere else in the universe, but sadly here it's what we live with. I, I, yeah, it's like the Louisiana Purchase all over again. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Hey, you know what? More power to him. That's the you know I'm, Greenland sounds like a fantastic place to just you know say hey that should be ours why not let's just do uh, it unfortunately the I, I have a i have a sneaking suspicion that he actually believes that it's green land like it's literally green and land oh he's one of the so. ones that get gets iceland and, and greenland mixed up is that the, yeah i think that's, that's yeah probably that's true. my might have a better shot yeah. at iceland he might. He might indeed have a better shot at Iceland. Well, yeah. Actually, Reykjavik is is on my bucket list. I want to go. Have you been to Iceland? Oh, it's beautiful. 
I I have very briefly. Yes, it's okay. it's uh, absolutely stunning. Um, and uh, yeah, I would like to go and actually spend some real quality time there. It's uh, it's 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 a it's a beautiful beautiful place. Now, is it for sale? Like when you landed in the airport, did you see for sale signs? <laughs> I did not. I did not see for any for sale signs. Nor did I see it for sale in the airport uh, store either. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get uh, into this thing, uh, it, you I know you're traveling a lot. Are you ready for uh, for your content marketing world hosting duties this year? I'm ready for the hosting duties. Okay. Yes, there may or may not be a top hat involved. So. Yes, um, I'm very intrigued by this top hat thing. You've been making a thing out of it on on Facebook, and uh, I have. I, I'm not sure yeah. what that's about, or if you're. Well, it's simply it's, it's, it's just, just a David simple, Copperfield thing, or I, I, was, was something I learned from my pal Joe Polizzi, who said if you're going to go in, you go all mm-hmm. in, and and so I am playing host, um, as you as you noted, and so you know, and this theme is a circus theme, and so let's just say I'm not going to spoil anything, but let's just say I'm going all in. Oh. I like I'm going to go all in on this thing. That's yeah. really good advice because I've learned if you don't have anything valuable to say, just dazzle them with props, <laughs> which is what I use. That's why well, I come out God knows soup. I never have anything to say. Well, so I, that is absolutely. No, not you. I'm talking about me. You yeah. always have something yeah. good. I mean, you're much smarter than I am. I come out in an orange yeah. suit because I really don't have anything of substance. But I'm like, hey, I wore the orange suit. Then you should be happy. Do I yeah. not entertain? Well, That's what I do. <laughs> Are you not entertained? <laughs> Fun. And then I'm on. We have to figure out how we're going to do the transition, or maybe yeah, exactly. Maybe I come out. Of I that. do not. Yeah, I do not have that figured out yet. We're going to figure that out together when we're when we see each other in oh, Cleveland. Very sweet. Yeah, that's that's really quick now. As we record this, we're only uh, we're less than three weeks away. From, can yeah. can you imagine that? I mean, it's 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 coming up very very quickly, and I am so woefully underprepared. I need to get I need to get uh, I need to get on it. You are not. You always say that. But you all you have, you have presentations within presentations that you pull out for whatever. It's like, oh, hey, we need this. Uh, we need something done on the future of social media, and you're like, I got that. Even though you've never done it before, you always just have a presentation for that. Oh, let, let, what, what about the future of content agencies? Oh yeah, I've spoken about that at eight conferences. Here's that presentation. You I like your impression of me. <laughs> Scotchy, Scotchy, Scott. Yeah, that's that's pretty much. That's all I have. So. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. Um, should we get into this thing? I don't know. If you want, I mean, people, the few people that are listening might want to know our takes on things, but they might not. They might. I haven't figured they out might whether not. they just listen because there's nothing else on the podcast uh, player these days, or uh, or we actually have something of value, or we're just entertaining, or we think we're entertaining. That's probably. I think it it's probably the last one. Yeah. Yes, probably the last one is the is is the thing. All right. Let's jump into sure. this because. We have a few stories to go through. It is August, folks, so it is a bit of a slow news uh, cycle time. Um, But we do have some fun stuff to talk about, and we'll open up with our first segment of the show, which is, of course, one story from the news that gets to the theme of the show and kind of tees up everything else. And we're going to start this with a news item that uh, it it came out just uh, a couple of days ago, and a few people are covering this, of course. Uh, But the, uh, the article that we'll link to in the show notes is from TechCrunch. Um, but there, as I mentioned, there are a number of uh, media outlets uh, reporting this, and it is the headline is that Twitter 
has now blocked state-controlled media outlets from advertising on its social network. Um, the article opens up by saying Twitter is now blocking state-run media from advertising at all. This new policy was announced just hours after the company identified an information operation involving hundreds of accounts linked to China as a part of an effort to sow political discord around events that are going on in Hong Kong after a week of protests. Uh, over the weekend, more than one million Hong Kong residents took to the street, of course, uh, which they see as encroachment by the Chinese government. And Twitter has basically saying, and this article outlines, yeah, state-run media is not going to be any welcome anymore to sort of sow any more discord or tweet out now here, here's the here's the thing I, i've got a quick take on this and then i would love to hear what sure. you've got to say on this show so my take on this is that it's very interesting i mean i think this is the first shot across the bow of many shots that are going to happen over the next let's call it 12 months as we get prepared for our own big election here in 2020 um you know the i mean the immediate question that everyone should ask is okay well what is defined? How is state-run media defined? I mean, yes, because exactly. I think without even getting political at all, you can look at our own media and you can make arguments on both sides um, about bias and about, and we'll talk more about that. I'll certainly talk more about it in, in, in my little commentary at the end of the show. But there is real questions there. Um, and I think it's an interesting policy that Twitter has gone about because I think they're setting themselves up basically here's here that's the thing okay. I think it's going to be um, you know they are setting themselves up for when we start seeing our own candidates and you know certainly incumbents probably more than anything else start to use this you know we're going to have to start ha asking some hard questions about what state-run content really is what is what you know what qualifies as that and what qualifies as trying to influence in an untoward way as you know this seems to be a little more clear with hong kong and china and all of that but i think it's going to get cloudy really fast what do you think yeah you know, honestly i'm trying to wrap my uh, arms around this because I, it's much bigger as you know i mean this is you know we're talking about sort of the political process elections anything that leans political but this is much bigger it's almost going to set the stage for a change in how social media operates and i i don't know yet what it's going to look like but when you you look at this so you have a twitter and it's happened on other social media platforms but you have big tech basically blocking certain people from using their platform in certain ways so this is an advertising right. but twitter has a you know they have a long tradition of blocking lots of people for lots of different reasons and some we still don't even know why they block certain people so we see that happening. We're going to see more and more of that happening. You're going to see more algorithm changes where it's going to give preferential treatment to certain companies or people over others. We already know that's happening. Uh, then you have the whole privacy data concerns. And I, by the way, I did watch The Great Hack on Netflix. So yep. I did. I did. Was it Netflix? Yeah. So I, yeah. I saw yeah. that. Yeah. It's it runs a little bit long, but totally fascinating on do we own our own data and are we do we have any privacy regulations at all so there's that going on and then you at the same time and i'll talk a little bit about this in my rant as well you have companies like amazon and facebook and twitter and goes on all of them are doing it they're basically investing in their own content i think as a hedge against everyone else creating content which is their biggest liability on the platform 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So knowing all that and that coming together in some kind of social media tsunami, what are we going to have in five? What is Twitter going to be? What is Facebook going to be? I just read an article the other day that said that Facebook can't be Facebook if they start investing in their own content and blocking lots of people, which is what they're doing. So I, I don't know. So what happens to our, do we even have any rights to publish on the platform? I'm going to say in a few years, no, we won't. I mean, we already, they've already taken away organic reach for brands. It's going to just continue. And so I'm, I'm just kind of going everywhere with this because I don't know where it's going to end. And I think you're right. Twitter's setting themselves up for, for something. So, so somebody's going to get blocked and then somebody else is going to say, well, why were they blocked? Why, why am I blocked? And not them, and then they're going to have to block that organization, and then all kinds of people are going to get blocked, and then you're you're going to have a one-way view or communication pattern of this is how Twitter, and specifically in this case, sees the world, and that's very dangerous in my opinion. Yeah, it's a, it's a big question mark. I don't think anybody has this quite figured out yet. But uh, and the reason I wanted to talk about it because it's really you know speaking to this idea of we're all in this together and going to have to figure out how to navigate through not only content marketing, trust, advertising for our businesses, but also, you know, in just in life, um, you know, the, the one, two, two things to what you just said, which I think are really interesting. And we didn't actually include them in the show. They just didn't make the cut was Facebook's announcement that they're going to now roll out the tool for users to be able to anonymize their data. And by the way, that's the way to put it, because what's getting lost in a lot of the mainstream media coverage of this is, yes, as a consumer, you can use this tool to go in and separate you from the data, but the data doesn't get deleted. You know, in other words, you go in and you can, apparently you can go in and clean up basically everything that you've liked and the data that Facebook knows about you. But all you're really doing is disconnecting your uh, identity from that data. You're not so actually... The data, as much as they're keeping correct. the data, but you, you won't be attached. Theoretically, you won't be attached to it. That's correct. Okay. You're just disconnecting your ID from that okay. from that data itself. And so, and then the other thing is, of course, that Facebook is now opening up um, licensing um, through um, through its platform to publishers again, um, and is going to start start theoretically paying publishers to display content through its interface. And so, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff going on here with regard to consumer data trust, like you say. And I think. This to me, I wanted the reason I wanted to talk a little bit about it is just because I think this is a big milestone. This Twitter yep. setting policy here, I think, is a big milestone and it's one for us to watch. Well, one of my things, and I'll be talking about this in content marketing world, one of my key things to look out for over the next 10 years is this idea that social media is changing. What I can't figure out is what it's going to be. All I know is it's going to be <laughs> <Yeah>. significantly different <laughs> because of the things, many of the things that we just talked about. And I don't think enough marketers are prepared for that. I think they just... You got, you know, your, t- you got your TikTok strategy ready? <laughs> Actually, I was going to put a little TikTok in there. I was going to... I have a big six. My big six of social media. And I almost created a big seven because of, because of TikTok. But I, I'm not... I don't feel that they're in that league yet. So it's only yeah. a big six at this point. I just literally yesterday got an email. I got off the airplane and I'm sitting in the cab and I get an email from L.O., and it basically says such and such user has liked your post, and I went, "Somebody's on what that? post?" Yeah, right. And so I went, "What?" And so I click through, and my login still worked. <laughs> Oddly enough, this is by the way from four years ago, yeah. 
and and uh, I click through, and the and the one post that I made on LO is still there. <laughs> it just and, and it, it got a like yesterday. Likes, it, no, it got a like <laughs> yesterday. It got like four likes and like and one yesterday. It's like that is cr- You're crazy. You're an influencer making. on yeah. LO. <laughs> I'm an influencer <laughs> on LO. They love me on LO. You're big. They love You're me. Big time. I'm. I want to get a T-shirt. I'm going to get a T-shirt that I'm, says "I'm big on I'm LO." Trending on LO. That's what, that's exactly what you want. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right, let's move along to our next news item here. This is, uh, also kicks off our next segment of the show, which, of course, is where Joe and I each pick a few news items that uh, struck us over the last week in the world of marketing and advertising, and uh, talking a little bit about all of those things. And the first one we'll start off, this is one of Joe's articles, uh, so I'm curious to get your take on this. And the headline here is that Tumblr uh, once sold for $1.1 billion, billion dollars. Um, the owner of WordPress just bought the site for a fraction of that. This comes courtesy of the Washington Post, by the way, and opens up by saying Tumblr, the one-time darling of social media, sold for a whopping $1.1 billion in 2013. On Monday, in perhaps the latest mark of its decline, the site was reportedly bought for $3 million. That's a lot less. Um, yeah, Twitter itself didn't miss a beat in pointing out that Tumblr's reported sales price was less than half uh, of this bluefin tuna. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I did not I did not see that in this article. That is a that's that's a little that's that's uh, that's some flexing. That's some odd well, flexing yeah, by Twitter. But it's the uh, article, yeah the article goes on to talk about uh, or the the journalist that wrote this is saying well apparently there are thousands <laughs> of people on Twitter that have three million dollars lying around that they could buy Tumblr with. So, yeah. Like, oh, if I'd have known, I'd have bought it for three million dollars. So. Oh my gosh! All right. So, what's your take on this, my uh, friend? So, first of all, it's just amazing that in such a short period of time, the value went from one point one billion to to three million. And a lot. And the the article's interesting because it goes into the fact that Tumblr, a lot of the content on Tumblr was pornographic of some kind in nature, and, and yeah, the, their owners said, oh, "Well, we don't want that. Uh, we want this to be a legitimate media company." And then that of course uh, hurt uh, a lot of their page views let's say but i the bigger issue here is just this is just another example of the fire sale that's going on on the media side that marketers are not aware of and and you and i talked about this last week with the death of journalism Uh, i think there's an opportunity here you've seen this with tumblr and and the owner of, of automatic who owns you know basically created wordpress yeah. Th- I'm sure that this is going to be one of the best investments they'll ever make. Uh, well, make. there's a pretty low risk. It's pretty well, low risk. You so, know what I mean? So that's, yeah. so that's a really good point because that's what we're talking about is risk. And if you look at, yeah. uh, I, I know the company F&W Media really well. They, um, they basically had a lot of craft publications and creative publications like writing. And they also had some outdoorsy publications like um, deer and deer hunting. And they went bankrupt. Uh, a couple months ago, and they had a fire sale for their media properties. And when I say fire sale, I mean almost nothing going out to people and buying. And I'm, I'm looking at, for example, one of the ones that they basically gave, one of the brands that F&W Media basically gave away was a magazine and a media site called Deer and Deer Hunting. And I looked at it. It's, you know, if you're a deer hunter, this is your home, right? This, this is your Bible. Uh, they've built an amazing brand over the years. They've got a great subscription list. I'm just thinking, 
why, why didn't Yeti coolers purchase this? Or why didn't Winchester rifles purchase this? Because again, they weren't thinking about it. And, and I've been on this crusade, as you know, for the past many years to get marketers <laughs> to just look at right. the opportunities in your own market that are right in front of you because it's not risky. We, we think that, that be, you are buying not only the content as an asset, but, but better than that, the subscription database and the relationship that that subscriber has with the brand as an incredible asset that marketers aren't even thinking about. Here's Tumblr, for example. Some, some brand could have had that for nothing, and obviously the owner of WordPress got it. But more marketers need to see this. I think it's a huge opportunity, and I don't know what it's going to take for marketers to start thinking about this. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, I mean, when I talk to uh, brands all the time, you know, and I start talking about how cheap, and I, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, but how cheap media companies really are, it, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. I mean, it, it, it truly is a very low risk, if you will, from just literally an expenditure. If you only look at it from an expenditure perspective, it's a pretty low yes. risk investment to buy something like this um, because they're not expensive. Um, you know, the, the statistic that I always use to sort of support this idea, and, and, it's, and, and it's one that, you know, I may get a little wrong um, now because I haven't quite kept up with all of the, the, the numbers, but at one point, if you added up all of the revenue of the MCU, the Marvel Collected Universe, basically from all of the movies, you know, so the, the total revenue from whatever it is, 11, 12, 13 movies, whatever it is, it's less than a quarter of the revenue, uh, one quarter's revenue of like Oracle. And, and so it's, yeah. you know, it's sexy, it's big, it's out there, it's popular, it's part of the cultural zeitgeist, but there's, you know, the money in it is actually um, relatively small. When we when we think about this stuff, so anyway, there's a lot of opportunity out there for for those kind of brands, and especially these days when, like you're saying, these things are going for fire sales. Well, and then um, I don't know if we talked about this recently, but I know we did uh, before the break. Talked about Dennis Dennis Publishing selling off two of their magazine properties to Raspberry Pi, the computer hardware. Yeah, company. exactly. Yeah, so they, they yeah. I think it was a custom PC magazine and a photography magazine. So That's how right. much? How much? First of all, that that takes the risk off the table that Raspberry Pi didn't have to start up two publications that who knows how that would have gone, but they have two brands that have been around for a long, long time that have a relationship with an audience. And oh, by the way, they bought all that content and they, they, uh, they have access to the staff now, they took the staff on and they have got, they've got the subscribers. And it would have cost them probably five times as much to start that up over a two year period than just buying it. And being done, right? And be like, oh my god! And by the way, man. and by the way, growing an audience and marketing it, and yeah. you know, training up their team and getting good at it, and all of those things that go along with that—that that takes twenty-four months, thirty-six months, you know, time. You know, it's instant content team, yeah. right? Someday, my friend. Someday, yeah. But absolutely, not, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Speaking of content teams and and content and internal 
things. The mine is in a related um, idea. It sort of takes the mirror look of that or the shadow uh, of what you just talked about. And this comes to us from the site marketingdive.com, um, which is um, an increasingly really good site, by the way. I just really enjoy uh, getting some of the content there. And this, uh, the headline here is from Adobe. Um, it's a research project they did. And it says just 35% of marketers think their content pipeline is efficient. Uh, the brief basically starts out by saying only 35% of surveyed marketing professionals report their current content creation and delivery process is well coordinated, according to an Adobe study shared with Marketing Dive. While most in the industry talk to outside teams at least weekly, many say the process doesn't result in collaboration. 75% of the respondents said that their creative process is helping strategic objectives very well or fairly well. Uh, basically saying that the situation isn't dire, but only half of surveyed said that the creative people are currently involved in planning and strategy with 71% saying that they'd like to participate more. So, and basically it goes on through some other numbers that are supportive of that. I mean, basically this article is the business case for why my consulting practice exists, <laughs> um, you know, because of the silos that have grown up around content and the lack of an operating model and, and governance and, and really strategy. You know, as I've said a million times in most organizations, content is everybody's job and nobody's strategy. And this is, you know, indicative of that. Now, I will say it's interesting that this study comes from Adobe um, in the, you know, sort of enterprise CMS enterprise now with their acquisition of Marketo, you know, enter enterprise email marketing and basically the full experience or marketing stack that they have that they're actually pointing this out. Um, because in many cases, what I find is, is that this sort of uh, lack of collaboration or lack of central agile change management strategy when it comes to content is in fact being held up by the enterprise technology. The enterprise technology has been put in as some sort of uber paintbrush stroke of let's get everything organized and then basically all hell breaks loose as they start to implement this monstrously huge technology project and Basically, you know, we, in the old days, we had this saying when I was in the content management business, um, and all my content management geeks out there will will appreciate this uh, blast from the past. We used to say it's the myth of the business user. Um, every technology provider platform out there talks about democratizing the business user and getting people to manage their own content, create their own content, and be, be able to contribute overall to the content strategy of the organization. And it's not true. The myth of the business user is huge, basically, because quite frankly, nobody wants to work in those tools. They're just not pleasant. It doesn't matter the tool. I don't care if it's Adobe or, you know, and, you know, WordPress or whatever. Nobody wants to do creative work in those tools. Those tools are merely there to work through governance processes. And so the challenge is, is of course, because nobody wants to work in it, nobody uses it. Therefore, everybody sort of says, it's just easier for me to email Bob my article and hope that Bob does something with it in a timely fashion, which quite frankly, can be a better way of operating. That's right. 
and that's the and, and that's the rub, right? And that's the reason you're seeing all of this is because the pendulum has swung so far to the right or left, depending on what your point of view is, that you know around this centralization of content management that we've lost the human collaboration and human touch of actually working together, and so. That, that's where we swing the pendulum way back. And I just wanted to point it out because it's just a great, it's, it's great data, but in many cases, what we're looking at is technology being the problem, not the solution. No, no, it, it's an excellent point because I've spent my fair share, probably half the time around media companies and half the time around marketers. So you sort of see how each camp, uh, with their take on technology. And I will tell you that marketers run fat way faster to technology than media companies do. Of course. And, and that's, you know, for a variety of reasons, they don't may not necessarily have the budgets, but I think that's where the innovation happens when you actually have some constraint and they have to think a little bit differently about their policy because they don't have this huge marketing automation launch that, this, that uh, ties all the content creators up for two years. So that's why you and I have talked about you put off a technology purchase sometimes as long as you possibly can because it might hurt you more than help you in the long term. I mean, the, and then it also gets me to think your your comments with just the content creation team integration. You know, what's efficiency with other parts of the team? I just sat with a editorial team recently. This is about a month ago, and we were talking about. You know, can how fast can they get data? Basically, set up listening tools so they can understand the needs of their customers and what people are searching for. And I found out that this team had been, you know, really, really good content editorial team. They did not have access to any of the search information that the marketing team had. They just yeah. they've asked for. Yeah. It. They were not given it. And I'm like, well, how do you know? I mean, it's not it's not the only thing that you look at. There's lots of different listening posts that you gather data to understand your audience, but it's a very critical one, uh, and they don't have the data to that. Now, could they go around and figure it out and use Google Trends? And th- sure, you could, but they have the first-party data right there, and they're, <laughs> they're not getting it. They know how people are getting to their articles, getting to their site, but they're not receiving it from marketing, which I think is a huge mistake, and we see it in large companies all the time, where marketing says, this is my data, and I will give you, content team, what I think you should have, and uh, and that's my decision to make. And I think that's a lot of breakdown as well. It's crazy the amount of a number of companies. So if, if this resonates with you, you guys, uh, just know that you're not alone, because it is crazy the number of companies that we go in and talk to and we say, where is your data stored? And they sort of look at you kind of like my dog looks at me when I hold up a biscuit. Um, and <laughs> I, I say, where is your data stored? And they say, well, what data? And I say, well, you know, everything around the customer from the first time you meet them and getting attributes like, you know, they're a visitor and then they open this email and they were like, oh yeah, that's in our marketing automation system. And I'm like, great. How about when they register for your resource center? Oh, well, that goes into the CRM system and the lead management system. Okay, great. And then where does that data go once they become a customer? Oh, well, then it goes into our Siebel system and it basically is all you know transferred over there. And I'm like, great. So you've got the same person in your in three or four or multiple databases that are not tied together, that are, you know, give you a siloed look at all of those things. And then that's when they go, oh, well, we have this marketing data 2020 project that we're working on that we're trying to link all those things together. And I'm like, when is that supposed to be done? And it's like, oh, well, 2025 or something like that, you know, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, a little, it's a little nutty, yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. 
Um, all right, let's move on to our last uh, story that we'll cover here um, before we get into other wonderful things. And that, of course, uh, comes to us, and this is another one from Joe, and it comes to us courtesy of theatlantic.com. You can see, folks, where Joe has been spending his time reading <laughs> lately. Um, and this is called The Amazon Publishing Juggernaut. Uh, what does the e-commerce giant want with the notoriously fickle world of publishing? Well, they want to own your every reading decision, says this article. It opens up by saying, have you read Victoria Helen Stone's False Step? No. Surprising, given that it's a bestseller and that you clicked on an article about books and publishing. I thought you were more widely read, says the article. Surely you've at least gotten through Loreth Ann White's The Dark Bones or Julianne McLean's A Fire Sparkling or Claire McGowan's What You Did. By the way, I know none of these books. I know absolutely <laughs> that's none That's not really of your them. genre. I mean, that's no, kind of different. Uh, well, fiction is not really my genre, to be quite frank. Um, basically, uh, the, not, the, the article goes on to talk about how Amazon publishes publishing um, is basically very quietly becoming a one-stop shop for all your consumer decisions about all things. Um, what say you, Mr. Polizzi, about this? What struck you about this article? Well, first of all, it, it's it's a truly interesting article talking about uh, what Amazon is doing with their Kindle membership and even in their Prime membership and how they are trying to create lifelong customers. So that's ho one whole aspect of it. If you're a marketer, I think it's a must read. What my take on this one is specifically uh, when Amazon has now owns the content is now they don't own yet, but they're close to owning the content creation uh, portion. So they have all the content because more and more authors are creating on their Amazon publishing platform. And then, of course, they own the distribution as well. So they own the whole thing. I mean, I'm, this is the kind of thing in the past where you'd have the federal government sniffing at them saying, okay, well, you got to break this up. This is not going to work, uh, which I don't think is ever going to happen. Right. What my take on this is why Amazon is growing so fast, and it's still because the traditional publishing process is broke, and nobody from the traditional publishing side is trying to fix it at all th that I can see. And I'm speaking firsthand because, as you know, Robert, I just wrote my first uh, fiction novel, and I'm thinking. I was thinking about okay, well, how do I want to publish it? And I really did want to go through and see. Well, what is what is it like if I want to go through the traditional publishing process for a fiction novel? Because you and I, right. we've been you and I have done it on both sides, self-publishing and with a publisher, McGraw Hill, specifically for our nonfiction books. But I wanted to see, okay, is it different from a fiction standpoint? And it is incredibly different because... Is it really? It's incredibly different. First of all, you can't do anything without an agent. And you and I, we didn't have an agent when we when we had our deals on the, on the nonfiction side. But you have to actually have an agent because publishers won't talk to you unless you have an agent. So that's one. Huh. And then... Once you have an agent, then the agent will go ahead and, and pitch to the publisher. But you'll never get to that point because none, no agents, unless you have a reputation that uh, is known to these agents, they, they won't get back to you. I, basically, about 25% of the ones that I contacted actually got back to me. And they get back to you in about, if they get back to you at all, they'll get back to you in about a six to eight week period. So, and, and granted, I... I am not. <laughs> I'm not known very well outside of the content marketing industry, but I got a fairly. <laughs> I've got a fairly good following. Don't you know who I am? I've got a fairly good following, and the fact I that can buy Greenland. I couldn't <laughs> even get anyone to contact me back. Just seems odd, but I can't get through step one to get to step two, 
which right. is the publishing process. Okay, well, let's say I do. Let's say I go ahead and I get an agent and then the agent will go through the process and say, okay, we make an agreement. So let's say that's a six-month period. Okay, now I've, I've got the agent. Then the agent will go ahead and pitch it to publishers. Well, that's another six-month or so process to actually find and get an agreement with, an, with a publisher. Then once you sign up and get something with a publisher, you probably won't be published for another 12 months, maybe longer. So this is a two-year-plus period <laughs> that you're wow. like, are you kidding me? But now here's Amazon. Where I can basically get it up and running in three months, no problem. Yeah. Or, or sooner, if you really wish to. Uh, and so you wonder why, uh, why Amazon's winning this, and they will continue to win it, because even though uh, Amazon gets money at the content creation process, and they get it at the distribution process because they're selling it, and maybe writers don't make as much money, writers are happy to, because what are writers? Writers want their content to be read, to be engaged with. So for anybody uh, listening to this now, I would read the article. I would highly suggest you read it. But the second thing is just, Robert, on my you know, personal experience of how hard the old way is to do it and why um, Amazon doesn't need any help right. here. <laughs> right. And we're giving Amazon all the help they need because you, the traditional publishing process is, is absolutely terrible. Yeah, well, it's it's again we're coming back to the it's a low bar, right? You know, it's like we did at the top of the show when we talked about the the acquisition of Tumblr, right? It's you know there's a low bar there. It's a low risk thing. So, you know, these are these are easy markets to get into because there there's not you know it's broken and yeah and if they can fix it, they can fix it. Absolutely, yeah. and they yeah. are. Yeah. So speaking of fixing it, we have a wonderful sponsor to talk about this week i mean i'm i, I mean is it a new sponsor joe <laughs> you know robert we don't have much time anymore I believe if i if my calendar is correct this will be the last content marketing world promotion from you and I uh, because as this goes out uh, there's two weeks less than it's two amazing weeks until content. that's right we're, we're recording this on Wednesday before but as, as you listen to this it will be starting in two weeks and uh, content marketing world in its ninth year Cleveland Ohio September 3rd to 6 4,000 marketers are going to be there talking about a lot of the things that we talk about but even more about where the industry is going what you need to know about the latest in marketing four days of educational content, um, some amazing case studies. It's funny because I was just emailing with uh, Amanda Todorovich from Cleveland Clinic. She has an amazing uh, presentation she's giving on what the Cleveland Clinic is Oh, doing. I know. I will definitely Oh, be I know. Uh, so of course yeah. you know, because you know all this stuff. Because you, I don't know what, I don't know where you find the extra time, but you just have these things just lying around. Like, you know all <laughs> of it. You know all 172 presentations I that are I do. I have them. Gotcha. I have them all memorized. Yes, you, of yes. course you do. Because you, you don't even have to go. You just stand outside of each of them and go. Ha, 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 I don't need to go inside. <laughs> um, you need. <laughs> if you would like to go, as in you listening, the people that are on this podcast listening, use code PNR nineteen to save one hundred dollars off going to Content Marketing World. Robert and I will both be there. We would love to see you there. Uh, I'm really super excited about it. Um, and you'll be hosting. I will. I'll yeah. be doing my, my keynote in the um, 
in the opening session. I think that's on Wednesday, opening opening the whole thing up. So that'll be fun. And uh, and there are probably a lot of other much more smarter people than you and I that are going to be speaking. But it should be should be a lot of fun. So make sure that you sign up to Content Marketing World and be there. And uh, and if you're not, I have no, I can't. If you're not, I can't help you. I, we can't help you. We've tried. We've been talking about this. Uh, I, there's nothing else. Help I can do, me help you, Jerry. <laughs> help me help you. Help me help you. I'm your ambassador of Quan. I think you're freaking out, but I like it. <laughs> uh, we could sit all day and quote Jerry Maguire. Yeah, we could. We um, could. All right, but now let's move to our last section of the show. And, of course, it's your favorite part of the show. It's something uh, that we love doing, and it's called our rants and raves section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel like we could buy Greenland or something that makes us feel like we should probably uh, keep that money in our pockets. Um, let's see. You Do you want to go first or shall I go first here? I can go first. Okay. I, that's fine. Right. Uh, I definitely want to hear yours and I want to make sure I give you enough time because I'm, I'm intrigued by what you're going to talk yeah. about. But sort of in keeping with the theme, if there is one of the show, um, I pulled an article here from the New York Times. It's called Paging Big Brother in Amazon's bookstore. Orwell gets a rewrite. Um, so we, we've talked about in the show about Amazon's dominance uh, of course, they own Twitch as well, but specifically from a from a publishing standpoint, the author of this article goes through the fact that he purchased, I think it's something like twelve or twenty four. I can't I can't get the number right of of uh, books that George Orwell wrote that were sort of sold on secondhand sites in Amazon, and what he found is in each one of these copies there was it was a different version. It's been rewritten. There's things left out of it. There's things added to it. So he's especially with with nine, you know Orwell's favorite uh, famous book, 1984. He basically said a lot of these copies aren't 1984. They're completely different. And he says this is an increasingly horrific problem that Amazon has to deal with. Uh, so it's worth reading this from just that standpoint. But I think this. I don't want. I mean, of course, you and I talk. Everybody talks about this idea of fake right. news, but this is this is such a huge problem. So here we are. I don't even think people are are have the concept in them where this is happening outside of Twitter and Facebook and other social media properties, where Amazon books, where you think are a safe haven. Uh, these, by the way, a lot of these books are sold by Amazon. Wow. So wow. Amazon doesn't even know. So so this is a huge problem. And first of all, what does Amazon do about it? Do they have to vet each book? I think the answer is yes, ultimately. They're going to have to significantly vet each of these books. And then what does that mean for content creators? And I think it's going to be a big issue. And we talked about it in the opening uh, section of this podcast where you have Amazon and Facebook and Twitter and Microsoft. They're all investing deeply in their own content because their biggest liability are content creators, I believe. Uh, privacy aside, all the other issues that go with it, the the issue is they have people, they just can't vet 
all the content on their sites. They just cannot do it. They haven't found a way to do it. They're trying to look at AI. Can we change our algorithms? Do we have to have a human set and mixed with a, uh, an automated set of people to look at each of these pieces of content? Where is it coming from? You know, we talked about the whole state-run programs. They, they can't keep track of it. It's too much content. This is billions of pieces of content that are going out every day. Nobody can keep track of it. So I'm trying to figure out where content creators are going to go when companies like Amazon and Twitter and Facebook start closing the door, which sort of continues exactly what we said in the beginning. But I thought this was article, article was interesting because I didn't know this was happen, happening because we, we've all heard about what the other big boys are doing and how they're dealing with fake news, but I didn't know it was existing in actual books, book and material. And then does that, I don't even know, does that go to audiobooks as well? And how does that, and how do we know that we're getting the real animal farm and, or, or fake animal farm? We don't know. And this is not just happening with George Orwell. This is happening across the board uh, with all kinds of different uh, pieces of, of literature that's been around for a hundred years as well as new that literature. Is so as a content scary creator, i'm i'm yeah i'm worried as well like i almost want to go out and say okay well did anyone take killing marketing and do something with it our latest yeah. book or or, or content inc or managing content marketing i'm i'm concerned that somebody else will get their hands on it starts reselling it and they do a different version for whatever reason to get outside of copyright or or whatever they're doing um so that's my take I don't know what to do about it. I just think people should be aware of it, that wow. it's happening. And I guess the one thing as a consumer right now, if you go to the Amazon bookstore, you really have to look and see who the Yeah, right, exactly. Is. Don't assume, yeah, don't assume that every copy is the same. Look and say, is this a legitimate publisher? Um, look at some of the versions and, you know, be, we, we can't just go on and say, oh, yeah, that, I'm going to buy that belt, and I'm going to buy that orange belt, which I bought an orange belt yesterday off of Amazon. I'm going to buy that orange belt because it's great, and then, and then find out it's not really leather, and, it, right. <laughs> and I don't know what it's, pleather. it's created it's from. It's pleather. Yeah, but I think we have to do our research first and foremost as consumers, and second of all, I think we've got a real problem when it comes to content creation, and this is, the, I think, is going to Wow. It is, yeah. That's, 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 a, that's really cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into that. I mean, that's that's... That's a fascinating topic, really, truly. Um, so, how about you? Sir? Well, do you, do you I have do. I have. I, well, I have today? a little bit of a commentary uh, more than anything else. Um, so, last week, you and I had a little chat about uh, newspapers, um, specifically local newspapers, and the opportunity that exists for brands to perhaps come in and acquire those. Much like the conversation we had in this show, right? Um, so one of our listeners, uh, a, a woman by the name of Jill Golden, um, wrote a LinkedIn post based on that. Um, we got her, we got her fired up, um, about this, uh, about what we were talking about. And she wrote this post and we'll link it in the show notes. And I just want to be super clear that the post is great. It's really, really good. Yep. Um, even though she takes us to task quite a bit, um, in it, um, and, uh, especially over our contention that brands should acquire these local newspapers. And she then goes through some arguments for that and basically uh, sums it all up by saying, here are some things that brands and agencies could do with local papers that aren't um, acquiring them. Now, again, great post, well, lots of things to chew on there, lots of things to think about. And the actual conclusion I don't disagree with at all, basically that there are lots of things that brands could do. 
Um, I will, however, disagree with her, and and I'll. This is my, I guess, my commentary if it is such a thing, on the idea uh, of some of her arguments that she opens up with, and she's got a gif there of Kristen Wiig um, doing. I can't remember. I think it's the angry. Uh, it's the angry side. I can't remember the character's name, but it's uh, we we fired her up. Basically, she was giving us the side eye um, for our for our talking about progressive insurance and and all that kind of stuff. But basically, her main arguments in this blog post are one: there has to be stark lines drawn between journalism and local news, and brands will always have an agenda when it comes to content marketing. Two, she says, local news is a crappy investment anyway. Um, two and a half, I guess, or the subsection B of argument number two is that basically we could simply help newspapers and this could be you know, the trend of companies that are getting out ahead of this by talking about social corporate responsibilities and she links to a couple of articles there. Um, and then three, instead of buying a paper, brands would be better in supporting them by subsidizing some of their services like you know, creating native advertising publications or helping them build a content studio, et cetera. And again, I don't disagree with that conclusion at all um and uh, and and those are very interesting points that she makes at the end and i quite enjoyed reading it but i i wanted to address the person in the gif that she basically put in there that Kristen wig character uh because the supporting arguments are just respectfully something i i disagree with the idea that one brands will always have an agenda here and we have to maintain those stark lines of separation um i just don't by this argument. I, if I, it's been made to me by other journalists and editors before, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, I just don't agree with it. Um, I mean, I know we have a social cultural bias in our, uh, you know, in the atmosphere right now that why would we would trust media companies for some reason. We trust media companies to productize their offering, but we don't trust product companies to create media in a similar way. And I think that's going to change. Um, and, and I think it is something we are getting over. As you mentioned, I think it is something that is beginning to become fuzzier um, a, as we go through this. And I think that's what you were really speaking to in your progressive example. It's not that suddenly you know, your local paper is going to be influenced by progressive insurance or not feature competitors, et cetera, et cetera. But in the same way that progressive insurance sponsors you know, the progressive field, um, and I'm sure there are people who don't use progressive insurance who go to progressive field and watch games you know it's it's meant to be a sponsorship of a community um gathering place and and i think virtual or online is just as viable of a sponsorship as um as anything else and when we hear the complaint about that sort of stark lines i'm i'm and this is really where i sort of get hopefully more to the point is i'm i'm reminded of a quote by voltaire who when somebody said to him life is hard Voltaire replied, compared to what? And I think that's the world we have to live in. So when, we, when I hear somebody argue that brands have an agenda for owning media, I say, compared to what? You know, compared to now, compared to past, you know, consider that, you know, Westinghouse owned CBS at one point, GE owned, you know, uh, NBC, Lowe's, the hotel and, and movie theater brand owned CBS for a number of years. Media companies have always and can, will continue to be owned by companies that are not media companies. And interestingly, if we trace the history, if we go back and look at the history of journalism and news, we can see that the real fragmentation certainly of television news over the last 25 years has really come 
as a as the fragmentation of cable and the aggregation of media companies have actually put them more on the hook to stockholders and investors for delivering quarterly reports, which is when news actually became a profit center rather than something that was just funded as a as a community service. But anyway, all that sort of aside, because if we get back to the local newspapers for a second, since that's where we focused here, so you've got these companies now, right? Hearst, Gannett, Gatehouse, others that have come in. And by the way, Gatehouse just bought Gannett, making it a large conglomerate of local newspapers. And what do they do? What's their strategy? Well, their strategy is to basically take all these local newspapers and homogenize them, turn them all into looking the same, writing the same, creating the same, in many ways, telling the same, basically treat them as a national that also happens to feature some local news. And there's even articles out there talking about how local newspapers have lost their quirkiness and their you know idiosyncrasies and their interesting sort of local flavor because these big companies have come in and sort of homogenized this, this whole thing. So agenda, when I think agenda and brand, I say, compared to what? You know, is it better to have a Sinclair Media or a Gatehouse come in and buy my local town's newspaper than it is to have Progressive buy my news, local news, newspaper? I, I actually would rather have a local business do it than having BlackRock or a hedge fund or some huge investment portfolio own my local newspaper and homogenize it down to where I don't even recognize it anymore. And of course, that brings us to the argument that they're horrible investments. And of course they are. They're, you know, I mean, by the way, local newspapers are typically invested in by these big national companies because they're little cash cows, right? They're little ATM machines that you can pour a lot of debt on and basically they'll cover their debt. And so we can, you know, hedge our bets for other investments because local newspapers are pretty solid investments from generating cash to pay off debts. Um, so anyway, we can look to all of these things and I would just dare say that from an agenda standpoint, I truly believe, and maybe I'm wrong, I would fully cop to the possibility that I'm wrong, that brands have just as legitimate a right to do this and fund this and acquire these local newspapers than any other investment, hedge fund, private equity firm, and set of investors um, that that are that are out there, and I I just I think I would prefer a local business to actually own my local newspaper, and all of the other things that Jill points out in the article are fantastic. They're fantastic things. So helping them subsidize content studios, helping them drive marketing campaigns through creating a print publication in the local town. But if you look at those list of services that she's got listed out. Would you rather have the transparency of an owned media platform of a brand doing those things, or are you more comfortable with a, a brand subsidizing just the executional arm, the publication machines and the staff to drive marketing campaigns? I, I think I'm a little more comfortable with just knowing that it's my local newspaper sponsored by Progressive. You know, to quote John Lennon, right? You know, that you know it ain't easy. You know how hard it can be, <laughs> but the way things are going, they're going to crucify me. Um, and so anyway, that's the end of my commentary, but it's a great article. We'll link it in the show notes. And thank you, yeah. Jill, for making us think harder. Hopefully, yeah. you know, um, but we've clarified a little bit, but, uh, but that's, that's what I'm thinking. No, well, first of all, I love the take. Uh, and I, I absolutely love it when anyone makes content from our podcast. Yeah, so well, right, exactly. Yeah, that's that's a goodness. I don't care if it was a rail or not, which it wasn't. It was really, really, really good stuff. stuff. I have a couple I have a couple things off of what you said. The, the list that she put together that I'm looking at now, 
uh, and you talked about this, where brands could do X, Y, or Z to help uh, yeah. newspapers. They've had that chance. They're not going to. Right. It's not going to happen. If it happens, it all happens in very, very small situations. It's not going to make a dent in the revenue or the profit line. So that ship has sailed, in my opinion. Um, second, so my question to Jill would be, okay, BuzzFeed, Wall Street Journal, and New York Times that have launched products. Uh, what, what? How are they? What are they? Brands? Product brands? Are they media brands? Well, they're both. So what? What do you, do they not get to do this? Because once you launch a product, you you can't be unbiased. I'm I'm just kind of throwing it out there. Uh, and the the third thing is on agenda or having an agenda from a corporate standpoint. And I hate to say this, and I would never mention the meetings that I was in, but I worked at a traditional business-to-business media company for almost eight years, and I was in dozens of meetings where people shut down content because they didn't want to upset an advertiser. Of course. So you tell me who has an agenda and who doesn't. It's a, There's an agenda. Com- so they're basically saving their butts because the revenue came first. I think if you have a corporate entity that is big enough and strong enough, uh, they don't care about that stuff as yeah. much as a small media company that needs that one advertiser that maybe is 20% of their total revenue for the month, they can't lose that. And so they're not going to do any, any piece of content against yeah. it. It's happening so, now in local TV. Again, just a It's couple. happening now in local yeah. TV with Sinclair Media basically centralizing a lot of their news items and basically having local news teams read. I mean, there are YouTube videos of this where they basically cut to 20 different local news teams giving the exact same story, literally word for word, even the same emphasis on the syllables um on the on the different you know on the different ways they tell the the tell the story oh that's so good but uh but yeah it's again it's it goes back to what we talked about in in killing marketing is what's the difference between a media brand and a product brand when it comes to content creation and the answer is nothing there's no difference from a business model standpoint. And the, and the, the only thing that's different is the perception of the people that look that's at right. it. And where we thought it was this way in the past, even though it wasn't, we thought there was was this line between church and state and I and I would agree with you that I well, I don't know. Does it need to be does it need to be carefully done? Yes. I mean, you can look to what Aero Electronics yeah. has done by setting up a separate division of the company and setting up the firewall between um, the business and the way that they fund all 53 now of their magazines and journals and websites and emails and newsletters. Would it need to be set up as a public private sort of uh, partnership with the city, maybe. You know, there's an example of that with the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, you know, there are there are ways to do this that can mitigate the, uh, the, the risks involved in looking at the balance between true freedom of the press and being sponsored and funded by a brand um, that owns that publication. Um, I think our only point there is is that it's an opportunity. It doesn't have to just be for billionaires. It can be, you know, the, the the idea that a brand can actually do this, maybe as part of its social corporate responsibility initiative, could actually own one of these local papers and set up a separate nonprofit to be able to do that as part of its foundation or something. Hmm. 
I think you're on to something. Yeah. I mean, there's there's ways to do this. Because, good, look, the being branded, it's not just about putting leads into the funnel. It's about, you know, appealing to employees as, a, as, a, as an attractive employee uh, a, a place to work. It's about making sure that my populace in my local town that's going to work for my company is educated and basically is, is savvy about the news. There are all sorts of good, wonderful business reasons to do this that don't necessarily have to do with selling products. And those are all content marketing strategies that are completely viable. That's it. Yeah, we are done. We're yeah. Wow, that went. It was very quick. Yeah. What do you? What do you? (laughs) So you got anything planned for the big week ahead? Um. Oh well, we have. we have grown-up parties. <laughs> oh, no. This is my wife's big grown-up party. We call it grown-up parties. I know what it is. Oh, I know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> no kids are allowed. And uh, we're this year, the, the it's not a theme necessarily, but this year we're doing silent disco. Do you know what silent disco is? I do is? not. Oh, I've heard of this. Wait a minute. It's like you put on headphones, okay. right? And Yeah. Yes. So basically, there's no music. Like if you walked into the party, you would hear nothing. But everyone that's on the dance floor has headphones on and there's three different channels and you can listen to three different and so what you'll see is let's say somebody's by themselves dancing to the red channel you don't know what that is you're on the blue channel and you see oh he's on the red channel or she's on the red channel let's flip that over i like that song better and then you sort you see the slowly people will turn their channel to that when everybody started to dance to the same one or you'll see you know three groups separate they're all dancing to their own thing it depends that's cool music that's fun and and I, I had my doubts the first time, Robert, when I saw it. But, man, after doing it, I was a believer. It is too much fun. So we're – that's the big plan. For that's a good plan. I like that plan. And how about you? Um, I am in full prep mode. Um, I am in full prep mode getting ready. I mean, I travel tomorrow. Um, I have my speech later today um, at, here at Connex, and then I'll travel home tomorrow. Um, on Friday, I'm doing a little bit of client work. Um, and getting prepped for content marketing world. And that includes, you know, I got some fun surprises that, you know, we're working on and all sorts of things. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of preparation, as you know, it's a lot of preparation. So yeah, full on. And then I'll be prep all next week. And then of course the week after is the day. So it's, it's time. It's go. time. Well, it'll be, it'll be fun to, it'll be fun to see. It's going to be great. So we'll have, we'll have a- It's going to be so much fun. Well, that is it, folks. We're going to sign off. Um, And if you like this episode, episode number 215, subscribe or resubscribe, won't you? We're still seeing fun tweets saying they're back. We're so excited that they're back and that's we're excited to be back, too. So, yes, give us a subscription, right? We have the goal. We have our goal. We want to be the number one podcast in marketing. And now marketing is a separate uh, topic area in iTunes and so we can actually look and see where we are we are top 20 but we are not number one yet and we want to be number one uh, full stop and we need you to do that review us subscribe tell your friends um, all about us uh, we will see you around of course at conference and workshops and all those wonderful things out on the road and and so be sure to let us know if you're a listener uh, as a reminder we're publishing twice a month now or basically every other week um, and if people want to connect with you Joe where do they connect these days have you got your new website up oh, yet? Yeah, the, the brand it's almost up. Uh, the brand new or will be brand new. JoePolizzi.com. P-U-L-I-Z-Z-I. You can get all my latest stuff and uh, my e-newsletter. And uh, one thing I will say, Robert, we could really use reviews on iTunes. Yeah, new reviews. So maybe yeah. you and I the next maybe the next episode. Anybody that reviews us, we can give them a little bit of shout out. 
uh, because we could use the new reviews because that'll that'll move us up a little bit and, and get us closer. There we go. I like it very much. And how about you? Uh, for me, if you want to know anything about what I'm up to or doing or writing about, you can get that at uh, contentadvisory.net. And we have the fancy new URL going here. It's www.tca.inc, tca.inc, um, which is lots and lots of fun. Um, so, of course, that is it for us. Story ideas as well. Socialize us up. Hashtag us at This Old Marketing. Um, and, of course, give us those wonderful story ideas. Uh, everything we talked about today will, of course, be in the show post. Um, and all of that, just remember, everybody, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you in a couple of weeks on This Old Marketing.